we left off last time in John chapter 3, and so it's been a while because we had Christmas and I've been gone, so it's been a while since we've been in the text, so let me just kind of try to build us back up, but we left off in John 3, 1 and 2, we met Nicodemus, but we didn't actually get into the conversation with Nicodemus, and as, as you recall, just contextually, the reason I believe that the, the story, the account of Nicodemus is even recorded in the Bible. One of the reasons, I'm sure there's a few, but one of the reasons really is because as we come out of John chapter two, John writes something here that's really insightful. And then he's going to illustrate it, I believe, with Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And this is what he writes at the end of John chapter two, verse 24. It says that Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, verse 25, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And see, Jesus knows mankind. He knows what's in people. He knows what they need to hear. Many people can fool us. They can pull the wool over our eyes. They can distract us with lots of different things. Jesus was a unique man in this way. He cut to the chase immediately. He knew how to get to people's greatest needs within minutes of the conversation starting. And he jumped right into it. We're going to see that with two examples. Nicodemus, the the top of the food chain, if you will, in Israel, the religious, wealthy, well-thought-of Jewish religious leader who externally didn't even look like the guy sinned, probably, to most of the Jewish people. And then the far other end of the social spectrum, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who's not only a Samaritan, that was bad. She was a woman, and to the Orthodox Jewish man, that was bad. Remember the Orthodox Jewish man, thank God I'm not a woman. That was his prayer every morning, along with not being a Gentile, right? So she was a little low end, and then she was a licentious woman. We're going to find out a lot more about her life. Two ends of the social spectrum, Jesus cuts right through it with both of them. He knows people. And this is going to illustrate that. And so as we get into this story, let's review a little bit quickly because we're going to look at a life-changing conversation. And when I say life-changing, it's life-changing for Nicodemus and people who have read this story and recounted this story. It's been life-changing for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people since this story was recorded. But we're going to look at his interaction with Nicodemus. And to do so, I want to just review a little bit. Nicodemus, as I mentioned, was a somebody in Jewish culture. In fact, let's just read verse 1 of chapter 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and that tells us a lot about who this guy was. He was a meticulous lawkeeper. He was nationalistic politically. In other words, he was pro-Israel, anti-Roman. He was very uh, passionate about that. He was uh, a member of the Sanhedrin. We learn later in John chapter 7, which was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish day. He was one of those 71 members. We also know in verse 10, and we're going to bring this up again, so I won't read it now. He was the preeminent teacher in Israel at this time. So Nicodemus was a stud culturally. He was a rock star culturally. People would look at Nicodemus walking down the road and they say, man, that's Nicodemus. Whoa, let's clear some space. Let's let him go by. Let's, let's honor this man. So he was a, what we would call in my, in my high school, big man on campus, right? He was a BMOC. Nicodemus totally was. Now, one of the things that we see as we get into verse two is Nicodemus was convinced at some level by who Jesus was. Who he was, 
what he was doing. And, and as a result, he wanted to gain an audience with him to find out a little bit more about him. In fact, when we read in verse two, it says, this man came to Jesus by night. He said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs uh, that you do unless God is with them. And so he tells Jesus, God is with you. We know that. Uh, we know that Jesus had just cleansed the temple, which could have been viewed by some as a messianic act of cleansing. Uh, he may have viewed it that way. Jesus claimed a unique relationship to God the Father by calling him my father's house, which uh, again prompted the Jewish religious leaders saying, wait a minute, you're claiming divine authority for this. Give us a sign. And what sign did Jesus point him to? the resurrection, the future resurrection. But then immediately after that, in verse 23 of chapter two, he did tons of signs. You see signs, plural, that were obviously convincing. It convinced the multitudes. And then Nicodemus as well says, for no one can do these signs. So Nicodemus is also convinced by the signs. And he says, God is with you. So Nicodemus comes to him by night. There's some speculation as to why. Was he embarrassed? He didn't want to see people uh, want people to see him talking to Jesus? Or was he just trying to get an audience with Jesus? You know, you can imagine Jesus walking around, people just wanting to be by him and just having two minute conversations with him here and there getting interrupted. So at nighttime, he gets an uninterrupted audience with him. I think possibly multiple reasons could be explained why he came to him at night. One of the things we see in the conversation, of course, Jesus does most of the talking, but what we see from Nicodemus is he's not hostile which makes him an odd Pharisee. Pharisees were typically hostile. Nicodemus was not. He was very respectful. He, he was very honoring. To call him rabbi again, we talked about that last week, he gave him an honor that, that his culture would not have given Jesus. And he does, even though he's a preeminent teacher in Israel. And then finally, even though Nicodemus was this preeminent example of religious accomplishment and piety in this culture, uh, and even though he spent his life teaching others about the law of God, the coming Messiah, God's coming in kingdom, here's what's tragic about Nicodemus. He didn't even know how somebody got into the kingdom. That's what Jesus is going to expose here. This is Nicodemus's greatest need. There's some confusion here on the part of Nicodemus based on uh, his rabbinical Judaism and his rabbinical training. He's confused. And this is where Jesus knows the deepest need of this man. This man had everything culturally. This man had position, prestige, honor, most likely money. He had everything, and yet he lacked the very thing that he needed because at the end of this life, it all goes away. And what matters is what happens into eternity. And this is where Nicodemus was lacking. In fact, Nicodemus, you're going to see in verse two, he never even gets a question out. It's amazing. Jesus just anticipates really what question he should be asking. Now, whether or not Nicodemus would have asked this question or not, Jesus knew he needed to ask this question. And so he jumps right in in verse three and begins to answer the question. And so let's jump in there. That kind of gives us a running start into the section this morning. Let's read verse three. Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so what's really interesting, and I, and I love these little nuances that sometimes we can pick up from the original language, but when it says that Jesus answered him, the, the verb answered is in the passive voice. That's, it, that's interesting. And I'll tell you why, because something acted on Jesus to make him speak. 
And I believe it was probably a combination of Nicodemus's words, a combination of his background. And then ultimately, the Spirit of God prompted Jesus to speak in this manner right then. He was, in other words, he was compelled to answer. Nicodemus hadn't even asked a question. But the Spirit of God compels Jesus to answer. Again, that shouldn't surprise us because we know that in Jesus' lifetime, he never spoke of his own accord. He only spoke when the Father led him to say something. He spoke because he was completely dependent on the Father, utilizing the Father's resources, not his own. That's the whole uh, difficult you know, explanation of Philippians 2, 5 through 8, right? What is, the, what is the kenosis? What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Well, what he did is he emptied himself of the voluntary use of his divine attributes. In other words, when he used divine attributes, it's because he was relying on the resources of God the Father. The same exact way, by the way, just a subtle plug, the same exact way we're designed to live the Christian life. Not in our own resources, but on the resources of the Spirit of God who wants to produce the life of Jesus Christ in and through us. Jesus lived the type of lifestyle that you and I are designed to live on a day-by-day basis. And so he is compelled to answer here. And one of the things that he's compelled uh, to say is he's going to tell Nicodemus, what I'm about to tell you, Nicodemus, is trustworthy. In fact, he uses uh, a very unique combination in the Greek. He uses a phrase, we know it, amen, amen. By the way, amen is one of those words that, guess what amen is in Hebrew? Amen. It just keeps coming through languages. No one ever tries to, it's called, it's just transliterated. It's just brought through in the languages. So he says, amen and amen. This is, these are Greek words. And, and it's an emphatic way of saying what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. Nicodemus, what I'm about to say, you can take this to the bank. Nicodemus, what I'm about to say, you can base your eternal destiny on. That's how important and how trustworthy what I'm about to say is. I like what the Net Bible says, I tell you the solemn truth. That's, uh, that captures the phrase very well. And what does he tell him? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Instead of any physical birth privilege, Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again, or literally he must be born from above. Now, we'll point this out in a second, but notice he doesn't say unless a Gentile is born again. He doesn't say unless a Jew is born again. He says unless one is born again. What is he doing? He's encompassing everybody. This is an all-inclusive statement that's trustworthy about everyone in the world. And we'll kind of get more into that as we go. Now, this word born again um, means to be birthed from above. You know, I grew up... uh, and even though I was going to, a, uh, you know, different Bible teaching churches and I got saved when I was five, I used to think born again was like a denomination, right? It's like, they're the Methodists, they're the Baptists, they're the Lutherans, and then there's the born again Christians. And I just thought that was some denomination. I'd never seen a church where it said, we're the born again denomination. This isn't what it's talking about at all. It's not a denomination. It's the only way you get into heaven. It's the only way you spend eternity with God. The, the only Christian is a born-again Christian. If someone's not born again, they're not a Christian. That's what we're going to see in the passage this morning. And, and, and Jesus is not going to even uh, equivocate here. He's going to say it very clearly with very emphatic language that there's no other way to get into eternity with God. There's no other way, and we're going to see that. Now, what's really interesting, a couple of things. To be born again uh, means to be birthed from above, 
I actually personally like that translation better, and I'll, I'll explain why. Although born again is a good translation. It's not like it's a bad translation. I just like birth from above. But because the verb born is passive, this is very important, this indicates that it's an action done to you, not by you, and it's done at a point in time. It's not something continuous. Now, if you're like, what does all that mean? Just think about your physical birth. You did not birth yourself. And if you say that you did around your mother, make sure I'm not close enough to get that fist in my ear, right? Of course you didn't birth yourself. Your mom birthed you. Your mother's body birthed you. It happened to you. You didn't cause the birth. You didn't birth yourself. And in the same way, the spiritual birth or this birth from above is something that you cannot do to yourself. It has to be done to you. It's accomplished by an outside source to you. And it's accomplished at a point in time. Last I checked, none of you are still in the birth canal of your mother. It happened at a point in time in the past and it's done. And the same is true of spiritual birth. These are some of the things that we're going to see kind of play out as we look at this passage. And this is why I believe Jesus makes your entrance into heaven, or as we're going to see entrance into the kingdom, a birth issue, not a behavior issue. Behavior is ongoing. Behavior describes a process of time. Birth describes a transactional event, a moment in time. Once it's done, it's done. If it hasn't happened, it hasn't happened. You haven't been kind of born. I don't care if your head's, you know, your head's out, your body's in. You haven't been born until you've been born. And at that moment, you've been born. It's not a process in that sense. And this is what's reflected even in the description of this word. Now, by the way, this is in the New King James, this is one of only two places where this word is translated again. I've got the other reference there, Galatians 4, 9. And you know, what's so interesting about Greek words is we understand this in English, but sometimes we come to Greek, we come to Hebrew, and we expect that a word has only one meaning. It's always used this way. Sometimes words have a semantic range, just like they do in English. And you got to look at the context to determine what's he talking about. Now, what we're going to find is Nicodemus is going to take it as born again. Jesus, I believe, meant it as born from above. And that would have given the distinction that probably Nicodemus did. And we're going to see that through Nicodemus's confusion as we go through. Um, but, but ironically enough, the rest of the translations of this word in the New Testament is top, uh, first, or from above. So it's got this geographical directional concept that it's coming from the top, coming from above, i.e. from God himself, is where this new birth originates. And so the real question is not, what do we think? But what did, what did Jesus mean? What was he talking about here? And what did he mean by this phrase? Is he talking about a second physical birth? That's how Nicodemus takes it. He's not talking about that. He is going to be talking about a spiritual birth, this birth from above. And, and here's the thing we want to draw from this. Whatever he's talking about, and we'll try to prove through the context that he's talking about the birth from above. We have to see it's the only way, the only way, That means no other way. (laughs) It's the only way someone sees the kingdom of God. This is what's crucial to understand as we go here. Because if you're not born from above, what does verse 3 tell us? You can't see the kingdom. Not only will you not see the kingdom, but you don't have the ability to see the kingdom. And, And what's really fascinating is the, and again, the way Jesus structures this, it leaves no exception clause. In fact, that word, Cannot translates two words in the Greek language. He's going to use it again uh, down in verse 5. 
It's a combination of two words, ooh, which is a negation, and it expresses a direct and full negation, independent of conditions, and thus absolutely. In other words, you might say never, okay? It's a, it's a, it's a negation that's got ne- never. And then the word that it's combined with is dunamai, which means to be able or to have power. And so the combination of these two wor- words just reveals the absolute inability of anyone to see the kingdom of God without this birth from above. This is the key. Now, here's what's crazy about this. We're not even into the passage very far, but you can almost shoot most religious teaching out of the water just based on what we've looked at so far. Because when you typically ask the typical person who's grown up in a typical church, and I don't care if you're in America, I don't care if I'm in Liberia, I don't care if I'm in Brussels, I don't care wherever any of us have traveled. If you ask somebody, what does God require of you to get to heaven? They're going to talk about your behavior and your good works. We have missed the boat. And it's tragic because people are going to hell because of this misunderstanding. This is key to understand that seeing the kingdom of God, there has to be a birth from above. Now the question, the follow-up question should be, how do I get it? How do I get it? How, how can I ensure that I'm born from above? That should be the million-dollar question that we have. Not should I light more candles, give more money, come to a church building more Sundays out of the year, read my Bible more, pray more, witness more, In fact, what are you going to witness if you don't even know the gospel? You don't even know how to be born again. You're just like Nicodemus. You know what Nicodemus' gospel message was? Oh, you're a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Are you circumcised? Do you try to keep the law? Okay, you're in. No problem. Nothing to do with what God provided through his dear son. Nothing to do with what God said he would provide all throughout the Old Testament, which was a solution to sin. Not a solution to your behavior, not a solution to your religion, not a solution to your ritual, but a solution to sin's penalty, which is death. How does being a good Jew solve the death penalty? How does uh, converting to Judaism solve the death penalty? We need a substitute to pay our sin debt, and that's exactly what Jesus did. And this is exactly how the new birth is achieved how do we get into the good of it? Not to make you wait the next couple of weeks. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we're born again. We're born from above. That's how it happens. This is what Jesus is going to lead Nicodemus to. Now, what does the word see mean? Well, uh, it, it, it means to see. How about that? Um, with an emphasis on experiencing what you've seen. In other words, you, you perceive what your eyes are taking in. Okay. In other words, each of you this morning, I mean, you saw the auditorium when you walked in, but, but according to this word, you, you're perceiving it now, right? Maybe someone next to you didn't shower. You've kind of, the senses have kicked in. Maybe you've seen other things, right? You've, there's a perception because you're in here now. You've seen it. You've perceived it. You're in it. So the idea is when Jesus is saying um, those who are not born from above, they're not going to experience the kingdom. In other words, they're not going to get into it. They're not going to see it because they're not going to enter it. And by the way, this was Jesus' message to any self-righteous Jew of the day. It is, is this, it, when they wanted to approach God on their own righteousness, 
Jesus challenged that message. They had self-derived qualifications that would get them into the kingdom. Nicodemus was no different. He was a teacher of others. He was devoted to the scriptures. It looks like he had a sincere heart based on what we're observing in this context and other places. He was probably very devoted to what he believed. All of these things are probably, were probably true of Nicodemus. But he didn't even know what it took for someone to get into the kingdom that he was teaching about. He didn't even understand it himself. And so it's, it's tragic to think that way. Now, some of you have looked at verse 3, and you've already noticed something that's throwing you off. And that's the word kingdom here, not heaven. Now, that's a sermon series in and of itself, and we'll, we may do that um, at some point, because I think that would be helpful to understand. But understand this, that when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nicodemus would have understood what Jesus was talking about as the eternal state. That's how Nicodemus would have understood that. Because of what? Because of prophecy in Daniel that said when the kingdom of the Messiah comes, it's going to be what kind of kingdom? An eternal kingdom. A kingdom that never ends, that, that goes on forever. And so Jesus, I believe, is, is specifically talking in terms that Nicodemus would understand. Now, we've gotten progressive revelation. You know, we understand that there's an earthly component that's, that's limited in time that kind of kicks off the eternal kingdom. We know that as the millennial kingdom. But do you know that we don't get that bit of information until almost the end of the book, Revelation chapter 20? That that concept of that kickoff part. I have a friend that calls that the kickoff party of the kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth, but it's an eternal kingdom. We know of the thousand year component, the kickoff party, but in Nicodemus's mind, when Jesus says he will not see the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, unless he's born from above, Nicodemus is saying he's not going to spend eternity with God. That's the concept that we, now we talk about heaven. Why do we talk about heaven as believers? Well, because since Jesus died and rose again and has ascended to heaven, the believer, where do they go when they die? They go into the presence of Jesus. Where's Jesus? He's in the heavenlies. And so we talk about going to heaven. But you know, conceptually, where we're going to spend eternity is in the eternal kingdom of God. And so again, like I said, that's a study that we could really uh, dig into for multiple weeks. But, but notice that's what he's talking about. He's, he's using a frame of context that Nicodemus would understand. And it's stuck. Okay, hopefully it didn't go twice. All right. Um, and so I mentioned this earlier, but every Jew at this time, because of rabbinical Judaism, of which Nicodemus was a part, they believed largely that their bloodline was good enough to get them into heaven. If I'm a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm circumcised. I try to keep the law. I don't disparage the law. I don't have this extraordinary wickedness or deliberate apostasy. I'm getting in the kingdom, period. And that's what the average Jew thought. That's what rabbinical Judaism taught. And by the way, this is why we've talked about this before, but why John the Baptist's message when he came preaching was what? Repent. Change your mind. Change your mind about what? This. <laughs> this isn't going to get you into the kingdom of heaven. You know, average Jew and average Jewess, this is not going to get you into the kingdom just being related to Abraham based on your physical birth. And so Nicodemus, to say the least, was confused. And in verse four, uh, he asked this question. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born uh, when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Now, the rest of the morning, we're going to go back and forth between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is going to be confused. He's got some follow-up questions. And then what we're going to see in verses 5 through 8 when we get there, Jesus is going to make multiple allusions to the Old Testament to convince Nicodemus that this was a truth taught in the Old Testament and that he should have been aware aware of it. And we'll kind of talk about that uh, as we go farther. But verse 4 Nicodemus was confused, evidenced by his response. What is he thinking? He's like, man, I got to hop back into my mother's. This is getting weird. This is getting like really dicey. I don't think my mom could handle that. Uh, I, so I must not be going into the kingdom. So he's confused there. Interestingly enough, and this was just a, incre- I got this from a, a, a Messianic Jewish uh, ministry who, who did some cultural research. There's other reasons Nicodemus was confused. He, not just because he thought born again, let me climb in my mother's womb. But do you know culturally, according to rabbinical Judaism, that there were six different ways a person could be born again in this day? They used the same phrase, this, this born from above or born again. And, you know, like I said, had Jesus said, Nicodemus, all Gentiles must be born again. Nicodemus would have been like, amen, preach it, brother. <laughs> That's exactly right. But he would have said, unless one, all of you, anyone, is born again. That's what confused Nicodemus. Here's why. Do you know that when a Jewish boy was bar mitzvah at age 13, they would say that that boy had been born again? When a Jewish man married a Jewish woman, they would say that he had been born again. When a Jewish man was ordained a rabbi, they would say he had been born again. And then when a rabbi became the head of a rabbinical school, meaning he had disciples, they would say he had been born again. Two other ways, when a Gentile converted to Judaism, they would say that that Gentile had been born again. And then when a Jewish man was crowned a Davidic king of Israel, they would say that he had been born again. And so when you look at Nicodemus, he had been born again these four times. And the other two, he didn't even qualify for. So in every way that Nicodemus could be born again, according to rabbinical Judaism, he had been born again. You could say that Nicodemus truly had been born again, and again, and again, and again. And yet Jesus still said to him, you must be born again. You can see why there may have been some additional confusion as to what Jesus was talking about. And so now what we're going to see in Jesus's response, because he knows his student, he knows who he's talking to, he's going to point to the Old Testament. He's going to allude to some things in the Old Testament to show him that what he's saying is not new. That, that Nicodemus could have known this truth from Old Testament passages. And before we do, though, I want to set the context, because I think this is very key uh, in you allowing me to develop this in verses 5 through 8. And that's to go down really quick and read verse 10. Let's read verse 10 together. Because at the end of Nicodemus' questions, Jesus says this to him. And after Nicodemus' questions and after Jesus' explanations, notice what Jesus says. He answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? See, whatever Jesus is about to tell him in verses 5 through 8, he expects that Nicodemus would know. And he expected Nicodemus to know. Why? Because he was just an average Joe? No, he was the teacher of Israel. In other words, This is taught in the Old Testament. This is what I believe Jesus is getting at. And so like any good teacher, what do good teachers do? They take what your student already knows and they build from there. 
right? They build from something known to teach them something that clearly at this point they don't know. I think this is what Jesus is doing here. And let's kind of develop that as we go through. And so verse five, this first Old Testament allusion, Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And here's what we're gonna see. Jesus in verses five through eight, he's gonna use three indirect examples or allusions to the Old Testament. Again, designed to point Nicodemus back to the book. Point him back to the word of God, not just trusting Jesus' opinion, but Jesus showing him from the word of God. See, Nicodemus, it's taught here. You, you should know this. You're teaching others. You should be able to communicate this to others. And so he's going to show him this. And so as we kind of work through again, Jesus, again, he uses that phrase, amen, amen. You can trust me. What I'm about to say is super trustworthy. You can take it to the bank. And what he says is this, and this is our first allusion from the Old Testament. Unless one is born again, or born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so at first, and this is how many people take it, and I just want to point out an observation that you can see in your English Bibles, but it it comes through strong uh, as well in the original languages. It seems like he's talking about two different things here. Born of water is one thing, and then Born of the Spirit is a second thing. But you can even kind of pick it up in your own Bible translation in the English 5. You're going to see that word of. And that word of actually governs both of those phrases. And what that tells us in the Greek language is that these are descriptions of the same event. They're not two separate events. They're descriptions. uh, They're two different descriptions of the same event. What is that same event? Well, spiritual birth. Birth from above. So you're saying that born of water and born of the spirit are describing the same event? That's what I'm saying. That's what I believe the text is teaching. This is what I think Jesus is saying. Now, what's interesting about that is many people get confused here and they think it's talking about two different things. You've heard these interpretations. I guarantee I held to one of them, not not this next one. I've never held to this one, but this is where you'll get people who will, because water is mentioned, they're going to tie in water baptism to salvation right here in verse five. They're going to say that you've got to be baptized in water and you have to be born by the spirit to be saved. Now that's a potential interpretation if, he's, if that's two separate phrases and two different things he's talking about. But because of governs both, it's got to be talking about the same thing. It's not talking about two separate things here. So that's a, a faulty, in my opinion, a faulty translation. I think there's other reasons for that, which we won't go into this morning, that, that you don't have to be baptized in water to be saved. That's something that you do after you're saved to declare what happened to you when you got saved, right? It's a testimony. It's a public testimony. So it's not what it takes to be born again. Another uh, interpretation that I actually held to for many years, seeing it as two different events, is that Jesus was, t- was using the word water here to refer to the amniotic fluid that bursts and spills when a person is physically born. Okay, you know, the water breaks. You know, we, those of you that have given birth to kids or seen it on TV, you know, that, that's a big thing, right? When that happens, you gotta, what? You gotta get to the hospital, right? It's coming. And so some will say, well, that birth uh, of water or being born uh, of water is referring to the amniotic fluid breaking. That's physical birth. And then you need spiritual birth. So that's what they would teach are the two separate events. Now, what's, what's interesting is 
Jesus will deal with the misconception of physical birth and spiritual birth, but he does that in verse six. You know, I don't think he's doing that here in verse five, because that is an issue for Nicodemus. This is where Nicodemus's confusion was. But this is why I think verse 10 is so key to understanding this whole section, because this is some kind of an allusion to the Old Testament that Jesus is giving the preeminent teacher of Israel. The question becomes, what's he referring to? Is there anything in the Old Testament that ties water and spirit together describing the spiritual birth? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I think it's most likely referring to Ezekiel 36. Go ahead and start making your way uh, to Ezekiel 36. I want to read through this section uh, because it describes the renewal of Israel it describes the, uh, the renewal via the old covenant, or I'm sorry, the new covenant, when they enter the millennial kingdom. And I want you to see the connection between water representing this spiritual cleansing and then the role of the spirit in that spiritual cleansing, tying this to the same event, which is this birth from above. Look at Ezekiel 36, verse 24. Is for, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Who's he talking to there, by, by the way? It's the nation of Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Verse 28, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. One more verse, jump down to verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruins shall be rebuilt. And so you see the connection between being born of water, born of the spirit, describing the same event. The water is representative of cleansing them from their sins. It's representing the, the spirit indwelling them at this point in time, this, this new birth that's going to happen um, to the nation of Israel via the new covenant. Verse 25, again, God's gonna sprinkle water on them. They would be clean. Verse 33, right? He's gonna cleanse them from their iniquities and their idols. You jump forward to verses 26 through 27. He's gonna put a new spirit within them. That's unique. That didn't happen in the Old Testament, right? The spirit came upon people temporarily. This would be a permanent indwelling, again, representing the new birth. They would cause them to walk in his statutes at that point in time. Verse 28, then and only then they shall dwell in the land given to their fathers. What's he talking about there? The kingdom. The kingdom reign of the Messiah. This is all coming together. And I think this may have been one of the things that Jesus was referencing Nicodemus to or alluding to for the sake of Nicodemus. Also consider Isaiah 44.3, combining water and the spirit in the same description. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. And so going back now to John chapter three, if you're not there already, uh, if you're not born of water and of the spirit, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice he switches the wording here. Uh, he says in verse three, you can't see it. Here he says you can't enter it. I think he's saying the same thing. This is just a little bit more clear in verse uh, five. But again, that word cannot comprise of the same two Greek words. Just referring to complete and total inability to get into the kingdom unless you have this birth from above. 
And so Jesus, uh, again, is, is illustrating this for Nicodemus. T- going on to verse 6 now, we see this second Old Testament allusion, which, which is also a common sense. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And here's where he, I believe he clarifies physical birth from spiritual birth, right here in this verse, not in verse 5, here in verse 6. He does clarify that for Nicodemus because that was his confusion, right? Do I hop back in my mom's birth canal? That's going to be a little bit hard. And so he understands that there's a difference between a physical birth and a spiritual birth. What's interesting, before we kind of get into this a little bit more, is both occurrences of the word born here, born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. They're both found in the perfect tense in the Greek. Now, that's significant for a couple of reasons, because it refers to a past completed action with ongoing results. The action's completed with ongoing results. In other words, we might say it this way. Once you're born physically, you always have that birth date. You can never be unborn. That, we understand that on a physical level. Sometimes when we try to make the transition to spiritual things like Jesus does for us here, people go off the rails. They say, well, yeah, you can be saved, but you can lose your salvation. This, this doesn't allow for that. This doesn't allow for that teaching. Because what it says is once you're born spiritually, you'll always have that birth date. You can never be unborn. Why is that the case? Because it's a birth from above. It's something that God has done. And God does all things well. God does all things completely. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's promising. We'll get to that when we get to John 3, 15 and 16. The promises that God makes. Oh my goodness. They're incredible. But the promises he made because he's confident keeping those promises. And so John also taught this earlier. I mean, we, we saw it in John 1, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who do what? Believe in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so Nicodemus is confused, right? And so Jesus is now trying to clarify this physical birth issue for Nicodemus, saying, no, we're not talking about another physical birth. We're talking about something completely different. When you were born physically, that was done. Results continue. We're not talking about redoing that. We're talking about something brand new. But functions the same way as spiritual birth in terms of happening at a moment in time with results continuing. And this, uh, again, was a common misunderstanding for Jews of Jesus's day. Part of that was perpetuated by rabbinical Judaism, of which Nicodemus was the premier teacher. This is what he taught. Physical birth and lineage were key to getting into the kingdom. Are you worried about getting to the kingdom? Well, can you go to the temple and show me your genealogy that you're a child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And if you are, and you've been circumcised, you're in. That was what they would use to provide comfort to anybody who is questioning whether or not they would get in. And Jesus is saying, that's not going to get you in, Nicodemus. You're, you're wrong on that. There's, there's a physical birth that has nothing to do with your spiritual birth. Now, we've joked a lot about that over the years, but even if you were born in a church, it doesn't mean that, you know, if you were physically born in a church, mom goes into labor in the back pew and you're delivered here. It doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, we know that, right? It, just like if you were born in the hospital, it didn't make you a doctor. I mean, it didn't even make you a nurse, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Your physical birth has no 
uh, inkling on where you're going to spend eternity. Each one of us needs a spiritual birth. It doesn't matter if your dad's a pastor, your grandfather's a pastor. It doesn't matter. We each need a birth from above individually. That's what this is teaching. And the Jews had missed that point. Now, what Old Testament scripture could Jesus be alluding to here? Well, I think there's a couple of options, but I, I like the one of the Old Testament account of Abraham and the birth of Ishmael. Ishmael was a son of the flesh. Ishmael was a son of a fleshly reliant human scheme, a physical scheme where uh, Abraham's parts worked with Hagar's parts, right? And, and procreation happened as a result of it. There was a, a normal birth, a physical birth. But then there was Isaac, the miracle son of promise. This should have caught Nicodemus's attention. There's a distinction in these types of births. One was fleshly natural. One was fleshly spirit enabled, miraculous. That might've been what Jesus was referencing him to or pointing him to. By the way, this is why John the Baptist, I mentioned this earlier, specifically told the nation of Israel to repent and not trust in the fact that Abraham was their father. Matthew 3, 9 says, do not think to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. What does that mean? That means they were trusting in that. Oh, Abraham's our father. We're in. Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, oh, we're in. Abraham's our father. Look what he says. God is able to raise up children, Abraham, from these stones. Your physical birth, although it privileged you to the word of God and the oracles of God and the law of God and the the temple rites and all of this understanding, it didn't gain you one step closer into the kingdom because you need a spiritual birth from above. And this is the distinguishing comment that he's making. And so a new spiritual birth is required. Now, Nicodemus and his... uh, his response uh, is he must be giving off some facial expressions here. Now, I don't know if it looked like that, but he was, he was shocked, right? Because verse seven tells us, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This word marvel means to be struck with admiration. Don't be, don't be shocked by this, Nicodemus. And then Jesus, again, as, as if we haven't seen the exclusivity of what he's saying. He uses another word here, translated must. It's the Greek word day. It means something that's necessary. It's got to happen. Obligation. This has to happen. Don't be shocked that you have to be born again. And so once again, it emphasizes the intensity that Jesus is speaking with, this, this importance, this urgency of what he's communicating to Nicodemus here. He's basically saying to Nicodemus, if he couldn't say it, there's no other way, Nicodemus. There's no other method. There's no other process. This is it. This is what he's saying. You gotta have this if you're gonna get in. It doesn't even matter if you're a rabbi. It doesn't even matter if you're the big man on campus. You lack what you need because only God can provide what you need, not your training, not your religious effort. None of those things can provide what you lack. Only God can. That's why it's a birth from above. And so this is probably Nicodemus's next question, although he never gets to ask it. He kind of he kind of alludes to it in verse 9. How's one born from above? Well, it's interesting. Before Jesus answers that, he's going to answer that over the course of the next couple of weeks in our study. We're going to see him answer that. But if it wasn't the question on his mind, it should have been the question on his mind. Jesus is making it clear this is you, you got to have this. The, the natural follow is, how do I get it, right? And this is 
what should have been the question. But before Jesus goes on to explain this, he's going to allude to the Old Testament one more time to convince Nicodemus that you've got to be born again. And so where does he go for the third uh, Old Testament allusion? Well, verse 8, he said, the, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, there's general wind patterns. We know that. There's recognizable wind patterns and weather. But oftentimes, wind twists and turns at a moment's notice. No one knows why, or you just recognize it. You, you see it. Now, the question then becomes, why does Jesus allude to this to explain spiritual birth or to give Nicodemus a better understanding of this spiritual birth from above? Well, I think there's three similarities between spiritual birth and the wind that Jesus is bringing out here. First, they both operate sovereignly. In other words, man doesn't control either one. You know, that's, that's what they tell you as, as a young man. Yeah, I try to go grab the wind and then let me know how that goes, right? You don't, you can't, you can't grab the wind. You can't harness the wind. Sometimes with tools, you can harness it for energy. That's a whole nother story. But, I, but you can't control it is the point. I think that's the one similarity. Second, we perceive the presence of both by their effector results. You know, go outside, we see a branch blowing. We know that the wind did that, but we didn't see it. But how do we know the wind did that? Well, because the branch was moving. We, we, we see it from its results, its effects. And so we know it exists based on its results. And then third, we can't explain their actions since they arise from unseen and partially unknowable factors. They're mysterious in that way. And so Jesus explains this connection between the wind, but I think he's also, again, as I've pointed out multiple times based on verse 10, that he's referring or alluding to something in the Old Testament. What's he alluding to? Well, again, let's go to Ezekiel. So hold your finger there, and I should have kept your, we should have kept your finger in Ezekiel. That's sometimes a hard one to find. If you find Daniel, just go left. That's a, that's a hint. Um, but Ezekiel chapter 37, we, we get this Old Testament passage dealing with the new birth via the new covenant for the Jewish nation. And, and we know this story. This is the dry bones, right? Being brought to life. But notice the imagery that the prophet Ezekiel records. Let's just, we can't read the whole section. I've got it there for you so you can jot it down. But look at verse four. Again, he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Jump down to verse nine. And he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds. O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then just jump down to verse 14. I will put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. And so you see the, the potential connection to the wind for Nicodemus to say, man, this is, this is taught in the Old Testament. I should have, I should have seen this. Uh, it illustrates perfectly what Paul goes on to describe later in Ephesians 2. We are spiritually dead and we have to be made spiritually alive. And how does God do that? With Christ, Ephesians 2 
4 tells us that God inserted himself into a desperate and hopeless equation and provided something from above that we could not do for ourselves. We couldn't give ourselves life. We couldn't give ourselves, we can't give ourselves the new birth. All of these things come together like a hand in glove. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. Again, it doesn't happen when somebody does the necessary list of requirements. That's what religion teaches. I mean, religion is so far off the boat, they're not even on the dock. Religion owns oceanfront property in Arizona, literally. They, they have nothing to offer because they don't offer this. They can't offer eternal life based on behavior because no one gets eternal life based on behavior. That's not the way anybody enters eternity with God. So religion has nothing to offer here. There's no requirements. There's no, no list. It's a spiritual operation from above, from start to finish. The question is, will you trust in what God did for you? That's how you enjoy the new birth. And so how does Nicodemus respond? I mean, this is some expert, I think, scriptural base, kind of directing his focus to see this taught in the Old Testament. How does he respond? Well, we're going to look at Nicodemus's last words in John chapter 3. And this is what he says. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? He uses the word can. It's same word dunamai used earlier. Just how is this even possible? <laughs> this is kind of what Nicodemus is saying. Now, he might, he might be questioning how is the spiritual new birth possible? He might be like, he, or he might implied it. It might be like, how did I miss this? How did I miss this my whole life? How is it possible after a lifetime dedicated to the study of the word of God that I've never noticed this before? That could have been it before. In fact, many people across the world are asking a similar question today. How did I grow up in church every week and not hear this, not see this, not get this? How did I go to Sunday school all my life and not get this? How did I go to every vacation Bible school in town because my mom scoped it out? I went to five or six every summer. How did I miss this message? People are asking this question all the time. It's a simple message. We tend to confuse it because we want to insert our behavioral requirements into salvation. And I'm just telling you, God doesn't grade on a curve. Righteousness is not graded on a curve. We have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, or we will not get into the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. We will not enter heaven. We will not enter eternity with God. This is what's so important. And again, this is what much of religion misses. And, um, you know, there's a, <clears throat> in Liberia, when we teach pastors oftentimes, and, you know, uh, Africa is a continent where there's a lot of false teaching that's just infiltrated everywhere. It's terrible. And so many of these men will come to the, the workshops that we provide. They've bought into some of this false teaching. But as we have opportunity to just teach the Bible verse by verse and go through it with them, uh, I've had multiple men, and it's just kind of, an, it's kind of a funny cultural, funny to me because we don't, we don't use machetes, but they will say, you just took a machete to my theology. And, and what they meant is you, you've really just knocked my feet out from under me, caused me to rethink a bunch of things. And I would say Jesus just took a machete to Nicodemus's theology. I, I'm, I don't know if Nicodemus is the type of guy that can sleep when he's anxious about something, but my guess is Nicodemus went home that night and didn't get a good night of sleep because he was thinking about this. Jesus just totally chopped up what he had been teaching and studying his entire life. And it was all right there in the word of God, all alluded to in the word of God. And as I've referenced before in verse 10, I believe that Jesus expected him to understand this. He answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? You know, again, he's not a teacher. 
He's the teacher, the, indicating he was probably the most premier rabbi at that time in the nation. Nicodemus was the man, and he didn't even understand the simple truth of how one got into the kingdom of God, and he should have known that. He was a leader. This is why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees and rabbinical Judaism. You're the blind leading the blind. You're, you're literally walking your followers into hell, telling them that you're walking them into the kingdom. And this is why I believe Jesus gets fired up with this leadership group because they are leading people straight to hell. And see, the teacher of Israel should have known and understood that a birth from above was enacted by the Spirit of God. It was necessary for entrance into the kingdom by everyone, Jew or Gentile alike. Physical birth is not enough. Behavior is not enough. Religion is not enough. Ritual is not enough. This is what the Jew of Jesus' day needed to understand. This is what they needed to change their mind about. They were so convinced and so proud of their lineage. And see, that's what's so great about the new birth that God offers to all freely. It's the only solution that can provide the necessary qualifications to enter into, into eternity with God. What are those qualifications? I'm glad, I'm glad you asked. Because there's really two. You have to have your sin debt paid in full. And you have to possess a righteousness equal with God's righteousness. Those are the qualifications to enter eternity with God. Each one of us are responsible for those two qualifications being met. Here's the good news of the gospel. God sent his dearly beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. Now, we all know that because we grew up in America. But when you connect it to your sin debt penalty, which was death, and Jesus paid the exact penalty that you and I deserve to pay, you got that covered now in the person of your substitute. He died for you. All you have to do is trust in him that he died for you. He's your substitute. Here's the good news of the gospel too, because he provided something for you that you could not provide for yourself. Not only the death, but God, when you trust in Christ, God credits his righteousness to your account. You got both of the issues solved simply by trusting in the savior that God sent to save you. And so that's a question for you this morning. I know many of you have trusted in Christ alone, but uh, maybe some of you haven't. Maybe some of you have had one foot in religion, your behavior, one foot in this, one foot in ritual, one foot in this. I want to just encourage you today, God is completely satisfied with what Jesus Christ accomplished. He wants you satisfied. He wants you to trust in him alone. How can you be convinced God raised him from the dead? He did something that's never been duplicated. He raised the man from the dead to live forever. He's never dying again. That's the proof. That's what's designed to persuade you that we can trust in Christ alone. That's how one is born from above. This is what Nicodemus learned and will continue to learn as we look over the next couple of weeks. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I, uh, I do thank you for this message. We want to keep uh, our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. We're so grateful for his death, uh, for all of our sins, paying that sin debt penalty in full. We're thankful for his resurrection, that convincing proof that you accepted his death on our behalf. And Lord, that promise that when we put our faith in him, we will never perish. We have eternal life and that his righteousness is now credited to our account. We actually can walk right through the front doors of heaven, not because we're good, but because he was good and because he accomplished what needed to be accomplished for us. And we're so thankful, Lord, for this solution that you provided 
for each one of us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.